If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you kind of know my story, but if you haven't, let me fill you in. Raised in church, the house I grew up in was actually one block from the church I went to, which was also the private Christian school that I went to. So that was my small orbit, those couple of blocks. And if that church was open, I was in it. We went to church all the time. The idea that I got, though, from early childhood in church was this, that God was like a cosmic Santa Claus. He was making his list. He was checking it twice. He's going to find out who's been naughty and who's been nice. And I knew enough about myself and I knew enough about God's standard that I realized I'm on the naughty list. That's the list I'm on. And the first 20 years of my life was trying to get off the naughty list onto the nice list. Like, what do I need to do? I'll tuck in my shirt. I'll go to church even though I hate it. It's so boring and stupid. I'll go because that must make God happy. I'll make sure not cuss around people that actually like to go to church because that would offend them. So I won't do that. So I had this list in my head of the requirements of God to be on his nice list. But here's what I knew. I didn't do it very well. I didn't do that list very well. Now I could sound like it because I had the vocabulary, right? I'd been raised in church. I had the vocabulary. How you doing today? Oh, blessed, man. Just blessed. God is good. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. See you later, right? I had it. So it seemed like, oh, that guy's doing good. But really, I knew this. The standard that God had for me, I failed. And I'm on the wrong list. And I had this much of the Bible in me that God was a holy, pure God who couldn't be around sin and evil and naughtiness. And since I was sin and evil and naughtiness, guess what that made me? Someone God could not be around. And because I was naughty and sinful, I knew this, God was gonna punish me. That because of my actions, because I was on the wrong list, punishment was coming for me. So it put this anxiety in my heart. I was just waiting. When's the next blow going to come? I heard this lie constantly whispered into my heart. God is mad at you. Run from him. Look out, he's going to get you. And I was under this kind of wave of fear. What's going to happen? Am I going to get some kind of a crazy disease that's incurable and slowly like destroys every one of my organs until finally I die? That could happen. Am I going to get kicked out of Oregon State University and have to do some kind of job I don't want to do for the rest of my life? Because maybe that's going to happen. Is my car going to blow up? Are my roommates going to kick me out? What's going to happen to me? Judgment must be coming. So I ended up kind of in this beat dog mentality, tail between my legs, waiting for the judgment to come because I'm on the wrong list and God is holy and pure, can't be around somebody like me. You ever felt that way? 
do you know what helped me? I actually read the Bible. I read the Bible. Guess what I found out? Can God, holy, pure, thrice holy God, can he be around sinners? I read Genesis chapter three. The first sinners. Treason, rebellion, essentially saying to God, we don't want anything to do with you. We're going to do it our way. How does God respond to them? Verse eight, the Bible says he comes to them. Verse nine, it says God calls to them. Where are you guys at? Can a thrice holy God tolerate sinners in his presence? Sure seems like it. Chapter three, right? Keep reading. You come to Cain and Abel. What does Cain do to Abel? Murders his brother. How does God respond to Cain? Crushes him. Actually puts a mark on Cain and protects Cain so that he doesn't get murdered. You just keep reading. How about Jacob? The guy that lies to his dad, deceives his dad, rips his dad off, lies to his brother and has to run for his life because he's such a scoundrel. How does God treat Jacob? He appears to Jacob in Bethel, gives him a vision and he says this to Jacob, no matter where you go, I'll be with you. Whoa, I could go on and on to the Old Testament. How about Jesus? God in the flesh. Can Jesus be around sinful people? Does Jesus only hang around the really good people? No, who does he hang out with? Tax collectors, drunkards, sinners, prostitutes, pot farmers, Matt Heverly. <laughs> right? That's who he hangs with. So here's what happened to me. I'm like, oh my goodness. I was wrong about God. There's not this list that he's holding over my head, waiting for me to do it. God rather is like the dad and the prodigal son. I'm the prodigal son. I've hung out with the pigs. I stink. I've made a mess. And then he grabs me and he hugs me and he clothes me and he robes me and he gives me a ring and he throws a party for me. That's who God is. So my list and my gritted teeth, okay, God, I'm gonna do this thing and I hope you're happy because I certainly am not. That's not what God wanted at all. And so I jettisoned that idea and I began to understand, no, I am received as a son because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf that I have inherited because of faith, his righteousness. Not any list that I keep. Not any work that I do. It was Jesus. It transformed my life. Do you know the one problem with that way of seeing God? James chapter two is the one problem with it. Let me read it for you and see if you can figure out why. James 2, we're going through the book of James. Verse 14, listen to what he says. What good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Your list, your do's and don'ts. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was complemented by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Do you see it? James would say, get to work. It's not faith, it's get to work. So I can read this. And it's like I'm transported back to the 20 year old me. And I start saying, okay, give me the list. What do I need to do? I don't want to be on the naughty list. I want to be in the good one. Do I need to keep the 10 commandments? What about the 603 other commandments? How often do I need to go to church? Do I need to go to Wednesday night? Yes. <laughs> do I need to go every night? Yes. What can I eat? Because there's all these rules about what I can and can't eat. What can I eat? Only kale, that's it. <laughs> kale or hell, your choice. Oh, that's a tough decision, all right? Let me think about that. <laughs> because I don't want to have a dead faith, a useless faith, a demonic faith. I don't want to have that kind of faith. Right? Hmm. Wait a second, Matt, though. I, I thought there are other verses in the Bible. And these other verses in the Bible say, it's not works, it's only faith that saves us. Oh yeah, there are those verses. Let me read them for you. So is it faith or works? Well, Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that seems different than James. Or Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man can boast. Or Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith 
apart from the works of the law. So what is it? James seems to be saying it's justification by works, but these other texts seem to be saying it's justification by faith. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Let's go through this text because there's four kinds of faith and it's really asking or answering the question that James asks in verse 4, 14, excuse me. He says, can faith save you? And each of these four, can that kind of faith save you? And we're supposed to read this and say, what faith do I have? All right, so faith number one, I call it solitary faith. And here it is. James gives this idea, it's verses 14 through 17. It's a brother in the faith. It's someone in the household of faith, someone that belongs to Jesus. They're naked and hungry. So this naked, hungry person comes to another believer and that person, they say to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. They give him a slogan. They give him what I call Christianese. You know what Christianese is? These little kind of sayings that we have. So this would have been a greeting that they would have had in the church. Hey, when they say goodbye, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled. So they throw out this little Christianese. We have the same thing today. These statements that get us out of doing anything, right? So there's an opportunity to serve or be involved. And then we have this Christianese and it's this. Well, that's not my spiritual gift. Translation, you can't make me do that, right? But it's a slogan that we have. Or, hey, I've got these kind of problems. This has happened to me. And we'll say, just trust in Jesus, which is true, but it also means don't trust me because I won't be there for you. Or sometimes we use prayer as a way out. Someone tells you a need and you say, oh, let me pray for you. But you're actually not going to help them. Praying for them is a way to say, I'm not going to help you. So we use prayer as religious terminology to not help somebody. So James is saying, that's not good faith. That's dead faith. That's what that is. Is James alone in saying this? No. James is agreeing with his half-brother Jesus. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus gives this analogy. Jesus is now glorified. He's in his right spot as king over the kingdom. And he has this group of people on his right. And he says to them, enter into the kingdom. Because when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was poor, you fed me. When I was sick, you helped me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they respond, they say, Jesus, when were you poor? When were you naked? When were you sick? When were you in prison? And Jesus says, in that you have done this to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Enter into the kingdom. But he's got a group on his left and he says, you're out. Because when I was sick, you didn't help me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they said, well, when were you naked? When were you hungry? When were you sick? When, you were, when you, were you in prison? He says, in that you did not do this to the least of these, my brothers. You didn't do it to me. James is simply agreeing with his half-brother, Jesus. Do we put out slogans so we don't have to help people? I was so convicted by this text about 10 years ago. 
There's this guy, if you don't know him, his name is Chuck Sherrard. He's awesome. Chuck Sherrard fixes RVs. That's what he does. He's not killing it financially, but he's a hard worker, awesome guy, loves Jesus. And I heard about this family that he'd helped out in Selma. So I asked him about it. And he had gone out there and done a job out in Selma and made like a hundred bucks. And he thought about this family. Remember 2009 was like the height of foreclosures. So he thought about this family that lived out there. He goes, man, I should stop by and see them. Stops by. They had just received that day the notification of foreclosure on their door. So they're losing their house. So Chuck shows up. Everyone's kind of on their front porch. They're crying and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, man, we don't have any money. So Chuck, remember, I just made a hundred bucks. So he pulls out the hundred bucks and just gives it to them. And then he says, can I pray for you guys? Yes. And so they all huddled up and they prayed. And this is what he said to me. He said, Matt, I gave them that hundred bucks for the opportunity to pray for them. What struck me was this. I pray for people so I don't have to give them a hundred bucks, right? They'll tell me about a need. and I'm like, well, let me pray for you. That's my way of being like, now I don't have to deal with it. Chuck was the opposite. It really convicted me. So what James is saying here is this. You don't always have to give money to people. That's not always the answer. But is your heart tender toward people that are in real need? Not for a cell phone or a TV, naked and hungry. Is your heart tender for those that are in real need? Doesn't mean you're gonna pay somebody's electric bill. It may be, I will sit with you in the dark in your home because my heart is tender toward you and your need. That's real faith. So solitary faith, James would say, doesn't save you. The second faith, I call it shuddering faith. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. This is what he says. You believe that God is one. You do well. He's sarcastic here. Even the demons believe and shudder. That term God is one was a creed of the early church. It was a way of kind of announcing, I am a person that believes in the one God of the Bible. God is one. It's a creed. This is creedal faith. We have creeds today, right? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. We have Westminster Confession. It's this orthodox thing that we have. And those are good to an extent. But what James is saying is this, listen, demons are orthodox. They believe in God. They're not agnostic. They're not atheists. They know there's a God. They believe in Jesus. Read Mark chapter five, read Mark chapter three. They believe in the divinity of Jesus. They believe in the authority of scripture, virgin birth, you name it. Demons believe in all that, but they're not saved because they have no heart for it. They have creedal faith, no doubt. They could recite it, but they actually hate God. They're not on God's side. So James is saying, I think if you could put him in today, he would say this, put your money where your mouth is. What you do really tells us what you believe. What you do, how I act, really tells me what you believe. So 150 years ago, there was this guy named Charles Blondin. And he rigged up this rope, 1,900 feet long, two-inch rope over Niagara Falls. Guess what that rope was made of? Hemp. I cracked up. Like, oh, they really are telling the truth. Hemp was used as rope. So it's a 19, it was the only thing you could make that was strong enough back then. It was a 1900 feet long hemp rope and he just rigged it across Niagara Falls. And he got 25,000 people to come out to Niagara Falls. Think about that crowd 150 years ago. You didn't get places in a car. 
right? That is a phenomenal amount of people. And they're all there waiting to see if he would die. Because you want to get a good crowd? Do something that you may die in. You'll get a good crowd. So they're all kind of, is this going to die, man? This is crazy. So he's just a crowd. He's just a showman. He's like, who believes that I can walk across this rope to the other side? And they're like, yeah, we believe you can. And so he walks all the way across this rope. They're like, yeah. Gets to the other side and he says, who believes I can walk backwards across this rope to the other side? And they all say, yeah, we believe you can. He walked backwards across that rope pulls out a wheelbarrow. Who believes that I can push this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And they all say, yeah, we believe you can. He pushes this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Then he says, who believes I can put a 200 pound wood stove in the wheelbarrow and push the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? Yeah, we believe you can. And he does it. He gets to the other side and he says, who believes that I can put a man on my back and carry them across Niagara Falls? And they all go, yeah, we believe you can. He says, okay, I need a volunteer. And nobody out of 25,000 would volunteer. See, what you believe will be proved by what you do. Do you really believe? James would say, put your money where your mouth is. Your actions speak louder than your words. You can have creedal faith, big deal. So are demons. Your actions showing. I can say I love my wife. And if I know things about my wife, like I know she loves dark chocolate. And I know she loves tart cherry kombuchas. But if I never actually go out and buy her those things, then guess what? I don't know if I really love her. Because my actions will demonstrate my heart. It'll demonstrate it. So shuddering, orthodox faith just makes you a good demon, according to James. And it doesn't save you. Brutal, right? There's a third kind of faith. I call this sacrificial faith. And the example is Abraham. So Abraham, he's the hero of the faith, right? He's called the father of faith. We sing songs about him. Father Abraham, right? He's the big guy. At some point in Abraham's journey, here's what happened to him. He had to stop playing the hokey pokey. He had to stop playing the kind of in and out game. And he had to take all of his chips and just say, I'm all in. And that moment is Genesis 22. When he is asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It doesn't make sense. He can't figure it out. There's all these questions about it. And the only reason why he does it, he says, I can't figure this out, but I know you, God, and I'm all in. It's a sacrificial kind of faith. I'm all in. At some point in our walk, we're all called to that kind of a moment. I may not be able to figure it all out. I don't understand this, but you know what, God? I understand you and I'm all in. I'm pushing all my chips in. It might be like this. So parents, have you ever had a little child, one of your kids, that you're trying to get them to jump into the swimming pool to you? Right? It's, it, you got, they got to commit, right? Come on, jump into me. So my daughter, Carissa, when she was four, we were given this eight feet tall slide. So I hooked it up and set it up into our doughboy pool. And I finally got her up to the top of it and I get down in the water and I'm trying to get her to come down to me. Like slide down the slide, come on. So it's like this conversation, right? You're going back and forth and she's just holding on up there and she's like, daddy, 
what's going to happen? Do you want me to explain it to her? Imagine if I explained it to her. If I said, okay, Carissa, you are eight feet off the ground. The coefficient of friction between your swimsuit and that slide is 0.18. Gravity will begin to act upon your body the moment you release and will accelerate you down to the bottom of the slide to a speed of 12.3 miles per hour. Your feet will strike first, which will cause your body and your momentum to flip you over and smack your face into the water. This will peel your eyelids back and splash water directly into your eyes. The force of 6,542 newtons will stretch your 22nd through 26th vertebrae, exposing your your spinal cord to possible paralysis, but you should be all right. Your mind will be temporarily disoriented, and if I don't get to you quick enough, you will suck water into your lungs and die. Now come down the slide to me, sweetie. Right? What do I say? Trust me. Come down the slide to me. You're going to love it, right? I've never tried to kill you before. I'm not trying to kill you. Come down the slide to me, right? At some point in our faith walk, there comes that point. Do you trust me? I'm not going to explain everything to you because I can't. You wouldn't understand it. Well, you push all your chips in and say, okay, I'm all in. That's what James is saying. That's what you see with Abraham. Now, does the rest of the Bible agree with that? Yeah, it does. Paul, the guy that wrote all these verses, Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, Paul says this, it's Romans chapter 12, verses one through two. He says, therefore, based on the last 11 chapters that I've been talking to you, therefore, Offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be all in, Paul says. He says it again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you don't belong to you anymore. You are owned by Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Live like your chips are all in. Paul agrees. Just Paul massages it. James is just, you're dead demonic faith. It's a different way of doing things, but it's saying the same thing. Sacrificial faith. And there's a final one. I call it scarlet thread faith. And it's based on Rahab the prostitute. I love that she's in here. I love that the Bible includes Rahab the prostitute all throughout scripture. Because here's what you know. Little girls don't dream about growing up to be a prostitute. Something happens to a woman, horrible, detestable, evil, horrific things happen to a girl for them to end up in this kind of a lifestyle. And you've got Rahab. And Rahab is in this city called Jericho. And she begins to hear these rumors of this God named Yahweh. And she begins to hear them and she begins to hear that he's a God of power because of what he does in Egypt. But even more, Rahab begins to hear something that would have sparked a fire in her soul. This God, Yahweh, doesn't allow prostitution because every God she knows around Canaan 
where she lives, all the gods of that area, they had temple prostitutes. It was just part of the thing. Certain kinds of people would be put at the temple and they would be used and abused and whatever you want to do, you could do to them. And the gods ordained this, but not this God. This God, Yahweh said, no, all people are my image bearers. Every person deserves dignity and you cannot treat my image bearers like that. And hope began to glimmer in her heart. Like maybe the dreams I had as a little girl can still come true. Maybe, maybe this God is a different kind of God. Maybe this God can save me, rescue me, maybe. And hope was lit. We call it the scarlet thread. She is the one that that comes from. She hung out her window, this scarlet thread, just a thread of hope. Maybe he's the God that can do this for me. Save me and bring me out of this miserable life that I'm in. And then when these spies come, she demonstrates that she has faith in this hope, this glimmer, this light, because she hides them and protects them, saves their lives. So she's put all their hope in this God called Yahweh and puts this scarlet thread out of her window. And guess what God does? He breaks down the walls of Jericho to rescue Rahab, the prostitute. How awesome is that? How good is that story? And if you know this, There are only four ladies that are in the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab, the prostitute, is one of those ladies. She goes from prostitute to princess. She becomes royalty. I love that so much. Because the faith we have is not for the rich or for the poor. It's not for the prim or the prostitute. It's not for the people that are on the naughty list or the nice list. It's for everybody. The faith that we have is for everybody. What James is saying is there comes a point where you say, I just have a scarlet thread of hope and you're the only answer I have. You're it. And that faith, that faith is saving faith. That's the kind of faith that God knocks down walls to say, I'll redeem you and bring you in. So these four are supposed to cause you and me to say, what kind of faith do I have? Is it shuddering, creedal, orthodox faith with nothing behind it? Is it solitary faith where I'm not moved to action by anything? Or is it sacrificial faith where you've just said, I I, I put all my chips in, God, you're it. Is it scarlet thread faith where you say, you're my only hope? Those are saving faith. Supposed to ask that question. So here's the theology behind it this dilemma of faith versus works. Here's what the Bible says. Action apart from works will not save you. You can have the right actions in life, but if there's no faith, it won't save you. You can read Matthew 7, 21 and 22, where Jesus on that day has a group of people that come to him and say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy? Didn't we do these mighty works? And didn't we do this? And Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know you. You've never put your faith in me. You're not like Abraham, my friend. You've never put your faith in. You've never put your chips in. So action without faith doesn't save you. James would say, faith with no action doesn't save you. So what's the answer? 
John Calvin, I think, put it the best when he put it like this. He said, faith alone saves, but saving faith will never be alone. That faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you'll notice what they do. That's what faith is. It'll have an impact on you and on me. And if you look at the stories of Ahab or Abraham and Rahab, here's what you see. Both of them, faith preceded their action. Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. Look up at the stars. Your seed will be like that. The Bible says Abraham, literally in the Hebrew, amened God. And it was counted to him as right. Okay, God, you said it, it's gonna happen. He just believed God. And then chapter 22 is a demonstration of that faith he had with works. His faith worked. Or Rahab, she began to hear stories of Yahweh, learn about Yahweh. And then when the spies come, she demonstrates her faith in Yahweh. There are two very important terms that if you don't get these right, Christianity never makes sense. The Bible is always like, which one is it? The two terms are huge. Number one, being justified. I'll give you a very simple definition that get really complicated. This is my simplest definition of being justified. It means this, being accepted by God into his family. You're adopted in. You're an heir of the kingdom. And some people would just put it like this, just as if I'd never sinned. He robes you and clothes you in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's justified. Justification happens at the moment you put your faith in Jesus. It is a work completely done by God. You and I contribute nothing to our justification except for our sin. That's it. It's all God. The moment you believe justified, completely accepted by God. But then number two is being sanctified. Sanctified, my simplest definition is, behaving like God, where all of a sudden you begin to take on the attributes of God. You begin to act more like him in a holy, pure, beautiful way. So sanctification begins when you're justified. That moment it begins, and it's the process by which you are moved forward. Now, will there be ups and downs in that? Oh, fully. Read the life of Abraham. All right? Genesis 15, he's justified if you would. Genesis 16 is the Hagar problem. Right? Then after that, he lies about his wife and she gets stuck into a harem. Like he's up and down, but his progress is going forward. It's step by step. Justification, instantaneous God work, sanctification, partnership, and you and I walk forward on this dirt path called sanctification. And it takes a time and it's a process and it's beautiful. But God makes this statement. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23. Those who I've justified... I will sanctify that the same love that accepts you and me transforms you and me. And what you never do is reverse the two. You never put sanctification before justification. It's not, well, if I clean myself up, if I get off the naughty list, God will look down and be like, man, Matt, you are killing it. Okay, you're in. That's legalism. That's religion. It's the opposite of what God does. God grabs us as prodigals, 
stinking like pigs, filthy and dirty, and he robes us and he throws a party for us. That's justification. And because we're justified, we will be sanctified. The best verse on this, a verse everyone should have memorized, is Titus chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Look at this verse. I'm gonna read it for you slowly. For the grace of God has appeared. What has appeared? For the grace of God has appeared. What has appeared? The grace of God. Bringing salvation for all people. What has grace done? Brought the offer of salvation to every single kind of person. Training us. What trains us? What trains us? Gritted teeth, lists of do's and don'ts. What trains us? The grace of God. Two, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Brilliant. God's grace saves us, sustains us, and trains us. Here's my best example. So imagine tomorrow morning, you get up, your kids, they stayed up late because of daylight savings time. They did whatever. They stay up till four in the morning. So you're trying to get them up to go to school and it's a nightmare. It's just like they are rebelling. They're just being children. What are you, a child? Yes, I am. So they're doing that whole thing. You've set out breakfast. There's all the cereal out. You've got all the bowls out. You've got all the forks out. And guess what? You're out of milk. You're like, ah, oh, all the clothes are dirty. You've got some in the washing machine. They're wet. So you throw them into the dryer, but they don't dry fast enough. So you've got to put on these like halfway wet jeans and you're just in these halfway wet jeans. And finally you get everybody in the car and you're super late. You drive your kids to the school. You get them out. But for some reason, because they're late that day, you have to go in and sign some papers and you're just super late for work. So you get in your car and you start to speed. As you're speeding down the road, guess what you see behind you? Flashing lights and a siren. And so you decide, I'm not stopping. I'm outrunning them. <laughs> so you just hit the gas, right? You're just flying now down Red Road Highway. You're doing 90 miles per hour, right? So all of a sudden, not just one policeman's behind you. You've got four, five, six, seven. You're like, I'm not stopping. You go even faster. Then all of a sudden you hear a helicopter over the top of you. Just whoa, 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 whoa. Pull over, pull over, right? We're going to start shooting at you. Pull over. No, you're even faster. You're doing 120 miles per hour. You come into the parkway and there's a barricade of cop cars across the road. So you slam on the brakes, you slide sideways, you almost hit a policeman. And then right when you, right when you stop, you look over and you'd forgot that you'd put your handgun on the front seat. And the cops show up and they just jerk you out of your car and they throw you on the ground and they cuff you and they're like, what in the world were you doing? And you explain to this policeman, well, this is what happened. This is my morning. It was just miserable. And the policeman's like, yeah, I've got kids too. <laughs> All right, I tell you what, I'm going to let you off with a warning. Don't do it again. Yeah. How would you drive when you got back in your car? You would blinker. You would merge slowly. 
and you would drive exactly 35 miles per hour. What trained you to do that? Grace. Listen, that's what God's grace does to us. When you really understand God's grace, it does Titus chapter two, verses 11 and 12. It transforms your heart and you become a different kind of driver. You have works. They just, it just happens beautifully, naturally, incredibly. Because if we're honest, we're all Rahab. Every one of us has sold our heart to something other than God. And the one scarlet thread we have, the one hope we have is that he would come and redeem us and rescue us and transform us. That's the only hope we have. And that's saving faith. So maybe you're here today and you're unsure where you stand. Maybe you've got orthodoxy, but you don't have friendship. Maybe you've got ideas and words, but man, it's never translated into actually how you live your life. Maybe today is the day that you say, I'm all in. And one of the best ways to say that you're all in is to go out here and be baptized. Okay, I'm all in. God, you've got me. You've redeemed me. I belong to you now. Train me now. May the same love that accepts me transform me. May my faith work the way it's supposed to. So we're gonna take communion here in a second. We're gonna pray no matter where you're at, no matter where you're at, that grace would train us. So Jesus today, for those that don't know where they stand with you, may today be the day that they know where they stand with you. For those of us that that have walked with you, purify us from Christianese. Circumcise hearts so that they're tender like yours. May we never lose the truth that you've saved Rahab's and Matt Heverly's people that have sold themselves to others. People that have sold their hearts to a love other than yours. And you've come after us, broken down walls for us because of your great love. May we never forget that. And I ask this in your name. Amen.